Hear now a word from Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Chancel Choir, and thank you, Andrew, for the reading of the scripture lesson. I want to add to that some words from this psalm, Psalm 81. These are not in the bulletin and, and not on the screen. These are just some words I want to add to, uh, again, the message today. Psalm 81, let me uh, begin with verse 8. Hear, O my people, while I'll admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. An old story tells about a guy who went deep sea fishing on his yacht and heading home at the end of the day, he was really weary and he needed to rest for a while. So he turned the helm over to his deck hand. He pointed out the North Star and he told him, just keep your eye on that star and keep the boat pointed in that direction. Well, it seems the youthful helmsman was tired himself and he dozed off. And when he came to, he desperately scanned the sky for the North Star and he couldn't find it. Frantically, he shook his captain and he said, wake up, sir, wake up. Show me a star, another star. I've already run past that one. There might well be some folks who are thinking, why give one Sunday, much less 10 Sundays, that's a long time, isn't it? To an ancient code from a faraway land and a strange civilization, haven't we run well past all that in our advanced technological age? 
show us another star. There might well be some folks who are, who are thinking that. But the fact is, according to Dr. Paul Eckel, we can no more run past the Ten Commandments than we can run past the North Star. These are not quaint house rules, he said, of some rinky-dink deity. They are basic principles which have proven to be foundational for life, both personal life and communal life, for a long, long time. The warning's been issued. We take our eye off of that star to our own peril. Shortly after Moses led the children of Israel away from Egypt on their journey to the promised land, God called Moses up on Mount Sinai. And Dr. Charles Allen, some of you might remember him. He died a few years ago. Great writer, great pastor in United Methodism across the years. But he wrote a book on the Ten Commandments. And in that book, he said that this might be how the conversation went between Moses and God on Mount Sinai that day. God said, Moses, your people are now headed toward prosperity. The land that I promised them is rich and, and flowing with milk and, and honey and all these things there to meet their needs, but much more. But Moses, people cannot be happy and people will not be successful merely by the possession of things. The way they live is more important than what they have. I want you to teach the people these rules. If they live by them, I promise you they'll be blessed. But I warn you that if they break these rules, there will be penalties. And one other thing, Moses, these are to be the rules of living for all people of all times. They will never go out of date. They will never be revealed or changed. Somebody said if people really did, if everyone really did obey all ten of the Ten Commandments, that would pretty well put the 24-hour news networks out of business. The Ten Commandments, they've been defined as the summary of an agreement between God and the children of Israel and Mount Sinai, known in Hebrew as the Ten Words, sometimes referred to as the Ten Statements, in only slightly different versions, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. The laws are first stated directly and orally by God to his people in the desert. First, God was identified as the author when God stated, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Later, Moses is made the go-between between God and the people. And Moses is on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue in, in written form. And in Exodus 32, it's clear that God had shaped and inscribed the two tablets on which the commandments were written. After 40 days in the presence of God, Moses descended the mountain, finding the people who had deserted both him and God for a golden calf. And you remember that story. He, he slammed the tablets down, breaking them into innumerable pieces and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put these tablets back together again. But God in a gracious gesture of forgiveness, could write on a new set of tablets. God ordered Moses, come on, back up here, 
back up the mountain. Bring blank tablets on which God once again wrote the 10 words. This time Moses successfully delivered the tablets to the people. Not in a fit of anger, he didn't break these. He didn't lose his, his temper. This time he brought them down successfully. And the stone tablets were kept, safeguarded within the Ark of the Covenant. First Kings chapter eight and verse nine states that the Ark's sole purpose was to house these two tablets of the law. Ancient documents, sacred documents. The oldest Hebrew tradition is that God engraved the commandments on the stone and that Moses was merely the courier. On the other hand, there's another tradition supported by Exodus chapter 34, verses 27 and 28 that makes Moses the scribe. God spoke and Moses was the scribe. Scripture itself gives no clue for how to divide or number the commandments. Generally, they are thought of as falling into two parts. Those commandments that have to do with our relationship with God and those commandments that have to do with our relationships with one another and with other people in this world. Traditionally, the statement, I am the Lord your God, is counted as the first commandment. Later, this statement is considered an introduction. And some of you have seen church art, and sometimes church art is amazing and it can inspire us, but sometimes you have to say, well, what was the artist thinking? And you've seen the picture of Moses coming down the mountain with the two stone tablets, and they are numbered with Roman numerals. And there was no such thing as Roman numerals back in that day. But the spectacular appearance of God to Moses and to the people before and after the giving of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, helped establish the importance of this covenant relationship. Exodus reports that the people trembled when they saw the mountain smoking and the lightning flashing. What's going on up there? What will become of Moses in the midst of all that sound of thunder, blast of trumpets? They begged Moses to ask God not to speak to them in person because the voice of God was frightening, frightening, but that Moses become God's mouthpiece. Sometimes folks say, oh, well, I wish, I wish God would just speak to me in a clear voice directly. Really? We really want to hear the voice of God like that? Would it frighten us as well? These people wanted a mouthpiece, someone in between. The voice of God could be frightening. After the account of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, in the biblical record came chapter after chapter of the detailed account of code of conduct. The Ten Commandments summarized a much larger code of conduct. These were not the only commandments. These were not the only parts of the law that were a part of the Old Testament, part of the tradition, part of our tradition. Taking up a great portion of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law, these detailed laws about the building of the tabernacle, about sacrifice and worship in that manner, about farming and so many other things, about relationships with one's neighbor, special codes that other ancient peoples, some of these were in their tradition as well, but some of these were unique to the children of Israel, to, to God's people. Physically, the tablets of the law follow the people of Israel 
wherever they wandered. The Ark of the Covenant seems to have belonged most closely to the tribe of Ephraim and soon became an object of worship in and of itself. And if you follow the writing about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, it was a sacred thing. It became where people were afraid of it and, and folks who touched it inappropriately died. This Ark of the Covenant, the tablets were, were supposedly in there. And according to one Talmudic legend, not only were the tablets in there, but the fragments of the first set of tablets that Moses threw down and destroyed, they said they were also in the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know for sure. The commandments appear to sum up the relationship between a loving and a holy God and what God expects of holy and loving people, then and now. I strongly believe the commandments are as applicable now as they've ever been. They are not like something we set behind a glass partition, like in a cafeteria, in different pans, and you slide your tray down, and you pick out the ones that suit you, and the ones that don't, you just kind of leave them there, overlooking. The commandments are not, as someone has facetiously suggested, the ten suggestions. If they represented a final exam, the Ten Commandments would not be multiple choice, but in a true-false sort of format. And to mark any of them false would be harmful. One scholar said what I believe was an, made what I believe was an excellent statement regarding the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And I believe he was on target with these comments. Let me share just a, a couple of those with you. He wrote the initial commandment is first because it is first. Nothing comes before it. Nothing, no one, no other forces or powers or gods with a little g come before the Almighty. You shall have no other gods before me or beside me or over against me or literally no other gods against my face. Most often the lips of the faithful these words are, and they are followed by, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. No other gods before me. And we love this God who loves us with all that we have, all that we are. The heart of the Hebrew faith beats out, he said, the continual rhythm of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. These words are the center of Torah, of law, most often on the lips of the faithful. And we observe these always. The first commandment gives motivating power to all the rest. Putting God first helps us to keep everything else in order and in line and, and the way it ought to be to prioritize everything about our life. Putting God first will do that and knows, the writer knows, God knows that human happiness depends on our putting first things first. And there is nothing to come before our eternal and caring creator. I mentioned Charles Allen earlier in his short book about the Ten Commandments. He claims that there are five objects of worship that we have to be really careful about putting before God. And though, even though the book was written years ago, I believe these still hold. He said we have to be careful about wealth and fame and pleasure and knowledge Wealth, fame, pleasure, power, and knowledge. 
And this list may not be exhaustive. It is not. But it covers a lot of things. And these are still issues for us. Are they still things we, we struggle with? Wealth. Most of us do not have delusions of grandeur in regard to wealth. Most of us will probably never spend billions of dollars to build a rocket and take a short trip into space. We never expect to make the list of the top 10 on the face of the earth in terms of our wealth. But we do have trouble being content with what we have. And that discontentment can distract us from giving our all to a loving God. Greed can obliterate need and we forget the one thing that is needful, the one thing that we need for a complete life, a life of wholeness and fullness and joy. And then there's fame. Most of us never really expect to be famous. We would like sometimes for a picture or a post that we put on social media to go viral. We want a lot of folks to see it and hear it and read it. Maybe read our name in association with it, but I think it's a part of us from birth on. We want to be noticed. We want to be recognized. And, and in a sense, that's not an altogether bad thing, and it never goes away, but it can become consuming. I remember years ago going with a, a guy in my church. His name was Lanier. He was in his 60s at the time. I thought he was ancient. I know better now. But he wanted me to go with him, to drive him, to take him to see his mother who was in her 90s. And Lanier had injured his leg and he was just learning to walk again without his crutches. And I'll never forget, we were there in that small room where his mother was and he was hopping around like a child, reminding me of my children who were three and eight at the time. And he said, are you watching me, Mama? No more crutches. I can, I can walk. I can jump again. I can move around. And he was bouncing all over the room, just like a kid wanting his mama to notice what he was doing and what he was up to. That, that desire to be recognized never goes away. And when it gets out of hand and gets away from us, then fame can become a God that we put before the Lord God of Israel careful about that and then pleasure and everyone wants to be happy but isn't it a, a misguided notion to think that pleasure is the way to get happiness we forget our routines and our responsibilities and we become obsessed with pleasure and pleasure is powerless to meet the deepest needs of our hearts and our lives I'm not opposed to that at all please don't hear that but it can be like an addictive drug. And occasionally we have to up the dosage again and again and again. And pleasure gets beyond us and can do great harm to us and to others. It's like that addictive drug. More thrill, more sensation. And it can become the most important thing in our lives, consuming our time and our energy and our resources. If we're not careful... It becomes the most important thing in our lives. And isn't that the definition of who or what our God is or should be the most important thing in our lives? If, what if we were to conduct um, exercise and we were to compare and contrast the time and the money that we spend on things that could be regarded as entertainment or, or pleasure and compared and contrasted that with the money and the time, the resources we give to the things of God. 
would those numbers astound us or do we pretty much know what they would be? What would the outcome of that exercise be? And don't do that just to judge someone else. Let's do that to look into our own hearts. And then power and knowledge. Let me put those two together. Someone has written and I will accept their findings or their speculation that the electric power in America is the equivalent of 150 workers for every one of us individually and is a great blessing to us. But power on another level, power worship can have devastating effects, can destroy us. It can erase any vestige that we have of courage and compassion. Inflating to the breaking point already overinflated egos. Knowledge can be a grand thing, but knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom, and the worship of knowledge can destroy our obedience to God. And knowledge is so readily available in, in the little devices we carry in our pockets and in our hands. Anything we want to know, anything on the planet is, is there for us. But wisdom, how to use power wisely to build up and not to destroy to encourage and not to discourage others to make a difference power unchained and unconfined destroys character to worship God alone reshapes us in God's image and helps us to become more and more like the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and to obey God's will. Keeping the other nine commandments becomes an exercise in futility unless we get this first one right and let nothing else come before our God. Out of what lands of Egypt, out of what houses of bondage has the Lord our God delivered us? God has every right, doesn't God, to demand to expect of each of us, you shall have no other gods before me. Amen.